are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, hello listeners, uh, those who are joining me for the first time as I go through the, the book of Luke. We will be on chapter 21 uh, today, and if you've been following along with me as we've gone on through this journey for about the last, I don't know, maybe two months that we've been doing this, um, I would highly encourage all of you, if you haven't listened to this one, if you missed a few, you've heard some of them, you haven't heard all of them, go back and listen to the chapter 20 podcast. It's, it's roughly about an hour long, so it's a little bit longer than what some of mine usually are, but it is a paramount one. Uh, and here's why. The whole concept of that one is about the authority of Christ. It's the authority of the Word of God that God has established for us that we need to come under and listen to. And this chapter that we're going to talk about 21, really every chapter in the Bible that we go through, we need to listen to. Uh, but in our you know, journey through Luke, that is such an important topic that we need to understand and understand the, the depth of it, the brevity of it, um, and just simply the, the concept of it, of how God has established that for us. And if we choose to not walk in obedience, if we don't humble ourselves under the Word of God, then we might find ourselves in the end missing what chapter 21 is going to talk about. And, and, and that's a serious thing. And so, we're going to get into chapter 21 Again, if you haven't listened to 20, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that one. You can do it after this one, before it, whatever. Just as long as you listen to it and you get that understanding from it. We're going to get into this one. Let me say this. Eschatology is something that I've studied. It's something I've taught on. It's something I've done an entire sermon series on as I've gone through the book of Daniel. And then I've highlighted things you know, in Revelation. I've piggybacked off of that. As we go through 21, there's going to be a, this temptation for me to get into eschatology. If you don't know what eschatology is, it's basically it's the, the study of the end times, of how things are going to play out. Here's the reality of what I've come to know on that. There's a lot of really smart people who love the Lord who are on opposite sides of that. And, and they have their reasonings for it. They've done their studies on it. They have the scriptures that back everything off. So I, I'm not going to focus as much on the steps or the process of what the end times are going to look like and how it's all going to come about and go into Daniel and talk about chapter 7 and go into Revelation. I'm not going to do that near as much as focusing on the things that we need to identify because if we do the right things, then we'll, make, then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be there for the end times, right? Um, we'll make it. We need to be focusing on today, not tomorrow, all right? That's what James says. James tells us, um, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't focus on those things so much that you miss today. All right. We need to focus on what do we need to be doing today so that we don't miss tomorrow's mark. All right. So we're going to focus more on that, or at least I'm going to try to do that. Sometimes I can get, you know, wrapped up in, in some of these things, um, because I have a, a, a passion for truth and revelation tells us in the beginning, blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy and, and, um, who talk about it, who teach them, who do them. 
And so there is a, a good thing to that. But we're going to try to keep it focused on today. Who do we need to be today so that we don't miss tomorrow's mark? So, starting in verse 1, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now this is one of those parables, or not parables, one of those accounts that we have in Scripture that I think there is so much profound truths that we can glean from this and take away from it and extract from it. One of them is, is how God expects us as His church to give. God doesn't expect us to just simply give from our abundance in something that doesn't really cost us. God expects us to give even in our lack. He expects us to give sacrificially and to trust Him. And here's why. A lot of people would, would look at this concept and be like, Oh, no, 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 it's 10%. Let me just tell you, 10% was an Old Testament um, teaching. The New Testament doesn't uphold the concept of 10%. And I'll explain why it doesn't. You can go and you can find a couple teachings that Jesus is going to bring up the concept of tithing, but he does it in a past tense sense. He's clarifying under the old what they should have been doing. He's not establishing new covenant doctrine. And you might say, well, even in, in I think it's in Hebrews it talks about tithing. Yeah, in a past tense sense. And the concept of tithing is something that was instituted for the Levites to be able to have a way of life, okay? Because they didn't have a portion in Israel. Their portion was the temple, okay? And the people were supposed to take care of them. But in the New Testament, we have a better example. We have a better instruction. And, and here's what is all wrapped up in John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave. And what did he give? Did he give 10% of his son? Did he give 10% of the blessings of heaven? No, God gave all. And as such, He identified the mark for us that all belongs to Him. Now, as Philippians 2, I think it's 3 through 5, talk about, do we have needs that God says He understands that we have needs that we need to take care of? Absolutely. Matthew 6 says the same thing. God will provide those for us. And He's not saying that you need to take away and just live this miserable existence outside of the necessities of life to sustain life for the mission that you have um, for to, testi to testify to the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need things. You need food and drink and clothing. But uh, if we're being honest with ourselves, we take it way beyond needs today. And we begin to be discontent with needs. And we begin to um, grow into our wants and even the luxuries of life. Well, God owes us that. Let me just tell you, God doesn't owe you anything. He already gave you everything that you need. Everything was given to you in Christ. He's already given you everything. He doesn't owe you anything. And I think we would do well to look at this example of what Jesus says is blessed. Is the one who lived in faith and gave in faith all that she had to live on. And he says she gave way more than anyone who in their abundance gave minimally. Now you can look at Acts chapter 5 and see what God thinks about people who withhold in Ananias and Sapphira. 
And you could also go to 2 Corinthians 8, in which he talks about from the story of the manna that was brought, I think it was in Exodus 16 or 17, where it talks about the story of the manna, that God provided the manna for the people of God as a, as a way to provide for their needs. And, and here's how it's break, broken down. Okay, You had each family represented with a um, oh, was just uh, an omer. Okay, It was a measuring device, kind of like a leader. And this omer was, was something that he says, according to the size of your family, take an omer, go out there, get the manna just for what you need for that day, and leave the rest for everybody else. And this is how the people of God were supposed to actually function among themselves. It doesn't matter that according to the size of your family, I understand, you might have ten kids like I do. You're going to need a little bit more. God gets that. He understands that. He's the one who opened your womb in the first place. So according to the size of your family, go out and take what you need for that day. I'm not talking about you storing up because he, he actually um, talks about that there. If you are going to store up, what's going to happen to it? Take what you need because that's the only thing that is actually blessed by God and ordained for that is that day. Everything else is not because it will get ruined. So he says, go out there and according to the size of your family, take the omer, measure out what you need for that day and go back and enjoy it. Take the blessing of that food and enjoy it. I have provided for you. But everything else that falls on that ground in front of your house, leave it for others. And I think we would do well to uphold that principle in our life today. It doesn't matter how much comes in. It's not, there's not some sort of a percentage that you are set to give. All of it should belong to God. Because all of Christ belonged to us. For God so loved the world that he gave. If you truly want to have the heart of God, then you give. When you choose not to, and you're reluctant in that, and your heart's not fully in it, and you're not cheerful in that giving, Second Corinthians 9 is not saying don't give. It's saying that's how I'm actually sorting out the ones who have a heart for me and who don't. The command to give is there. Even Luke 12, he, Jesus says it in 33 through 34. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. That's not, a, that's not a request. That's a command. But the blessing comes whenever you have the cheerful heart and you're not doing it under compulsion or reluctancy. That's when the blessings, the joy comes in in your giving. And that's when you actually prove that you have a heart like God's. That's how we need to be living. Is to give. Peter Waldo, whenever he first came to the faith, he, he was a wealthy man. And he stood on street corners and began to just hand it out to the people who were in need. All of his inheritance, all of his money, everything that he had, prosperity-wise, he began to give it. And the crazy thing is, it's, it, and again, let me clarify this. The prosperity in and of itself is not evil. God prospers people sometimes. It's what you do with it that determines if it's evil or not. If you're doing it in a self-indulgent thing and you're living it up, you might be a generous person. But if you're living in self-indulgence, let me just tell you, you are not following Jesus Christ. God might cause millions to come into your bank account. That is not evil, depending on how you got it, I guess. But that's not evil. It's what you choose to do with it that would either represent Christ well Or would be a poor representation of Christ. So that's what we have to ask ourselves. Are you representing him well or are you not? 
Going on, he says in verse 5, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he says, See to it that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is at hand, do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So, here's the situation. In another account, it's the disciples who are pointing out these stones to him. So they're walking by this temple, and understand, this temple is, is massive. All right, Herod built this temple, Solomon's portico, and goes all the way around it, in the courtyards, and the temple, and the inner court. This is massive. I, I, I did a study on it one time, and I wanted to say it's like the equivalent of like two or three football fields long. It's something like that. It's something crazy. This is a massive thing. And they're walking by, and they're pointing out all these fine stones and, and how costly these stones were and how beautiful it is, much to the notion of what we do today in the church. We look at people who have that nice house and the fancy car and the nice clothes and be like, oh, look how beautiful they are. And Jesus says, man, I don't care. Because just as it was, will be with this temple, so will it be with your life. That's what James 5 teaches. Come now, you rich, you weep, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He says, you fatten your hearts in the day of slaughter. That doesn't sound good. You lived in luxury and self-indulgence and the things that you stored up for yourself, they will be evidence against you. Go read James 5. That's exactly what it says. And then he tells the brothers, those who are pursuing the Lord, be patient, therefore, brothers. Don't give in to the temptation to live it up in this life. To eat, drink, and be merry. He has another thing in Luke 12 about that one. About where you're going to end up with that. Our job is to imitate Christ. And let me just tell you, he didn't live in luxury. So for those who want to try to justify this health, wealth, prosperity lifestyle in which you get to live a self-indulgent life like so many people do, who are part of that, that movement, let me just tell you, you're wrong, you're in sin, and you will give judgment for it. You cannot live under the old covenant and the new. Can't mix them. In the old covenant, God promised riches for those who obey him. In the new covenant, not so much. Because of all the people who should have been rich, it should have been Jesus. And yet he chose to live simply and humbly, counting others more significant than himself, even choosing death on a cross for the sake of all mankind. So in this, he's pointing, these people are pointed out, and Jesus says, man, I don't care. I don't care how beautiful that temple looks. It will be destroyed one day, same way as our bodies. One day our bodies are going to be destroyed. So all these people who are out there, and they've got these physiques of quote-unquote Greek gods, he says, your body is going to be destroyed one day. Take care of it so that you can serve me well. But if you get into vanity, let me just tell you, I don't care what you look like. What I want is I want your heart to serve me and I want your body capable of serving me to the level that I tell you to. Man, if you let yourself go and you just, you just want to go eat what you want, you eat out all the time, you spend indulgence amounts of money on, um, on you, and you, you, you are out of shape, well, let me just tell you, when you go to go serve God, you're not going to serve him very well. 
I went on this mission trip one time with this guy that, man, bless his heart, he, he gave everything he had. But the guy was about 400 pounds, and what he had was not a whole lot. Is God honored by when we give him everything we got? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think that, that he dishonored God, but let me just tell you, I think that the way that he had been living and what he was eating and what he was doing of not taking care of his body was dishonoring to God. And it limited how he could be used. And this is what he talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now this is more of the heart and the, the sinful tendencies, but I think it's true in the physical sense. Is that he says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he becomes a vessel of honorable use to the master. If we're not cleansing ourselves from what is dishonorable, if we don't have self-control in what we eat, and we don't exercise our body that has some value, as 1 Timothy 4 tells us, then we're not as much of use to the master. So the point is, God doesn't care about the temple. He doesn't care about the costly stones. He doesn't care about what your body is going to look like solely, that it is capable of serving Him in a manner in which is beneficial to Him. And he goes on and he says in the context of end times eschatology where he says, see to that you are not led astray for many will come in my name saying I am he. Now this could be several things. This could be somebody who's saying that they are the Christ. Or it could be somebody who's coming and declaring that they believe in Jesus as the Christ. I could make an argument for both. Which one it is or if it's not both. I, I would tend to say that both fall into the category of what Jesus is talking about. The point is to not be led astray. From people who say that they represent Christ and they believe in him or that they are the Christ. Which there are people out there who are saying that they are Jesus incarnate or that they are the Christ. And there are people who are actually falling for it. Who are, who are actually following these, these guys. He says, don't follow them. Don't go after them. It says people are going to come say, hey, the time is at hand. He said, don't go after them. When you hear of wars and tumults, which is the Greek word, adestasia, it means instability, disorder, and confusion. I'm going to say, that's pretty rampant out in the world today. You hear wars and you hear about confusion within the world, man, gender identity. That's a huge place of confusion for many people today. Let me just tell you, if God made you a man when you were born, you're a man. There's no, no identity crisis that's there. You are a man. If you were born a woman, you are a woman. There's no identity confusion. God made you a man. Therefore, you are a man. He says, these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Now understand, we're going to get into this in just a little bit, closing off. That the verses 8 through 28, all these things must take place before the Son of Man comes. Now... This is why it's an important thing to understand that is because you have a preterist viewpoint or a partial preterist in which they believe that these things have already come. Partial preterists believe that some of these things have actually come. And what they mean is that when he talks about this temple being destroyed, that that was in 70 AD. Well, I'm going to debunk that in just a second as we get into this a little bit further. Just understand, these things are being written in roughly about 33 AD. And a generation to them... Uh, was considered 30 to 33 years, all right? So at the most, that would put us at 66 AD. Well, let me just tell you. I'll get into it in a little bit, actually. Just save that little tidbit of information, that the, at most, it could be 66 AD, if I'm going to take it as a literal generation, okay? 
He goes on, he says, Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, which basically means plagues or diseases. Um, there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you, persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up by parents, even by parents, and brothers, and relatives, and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. This is a fascinating thing that we can extract a lot of truths from, but we're going to limit it. Here's a couple things. One, those who follow after Christ will be hated by the world. Jesus says it in John 15 as well. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But since I called you out of the world, I chose you to live a different life than what the world lives. Because you stand in the light, the darkness will hate you. Because you speak a word of truth, those who want to live in lies under the father of lies will hate you. Because you want to live holy as he is holy, the unholy will hate you. Let me just ask you, Christian... Are you hated by people who don't want to live in the light? Who don't want to live in truth? Who don't want to be holy as He is holy? Are you hated by those people? Because let me just tell you, if you're not, if you are loved by those people, then there's a really good chance that you're of the world. Those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted by those who don't. 2 Timothy 3.12 So that's one thing we can learn from this. One, don't trust your own mind and your own tongue. Just as it was with Moses when Moses was like, hey, you know, hey, hey God, I know you're calling me to go back to Egypt. But let me just say, I'm, I, I have a stuttering problem. I'm not that eloquent in speech. I'm not, that, I'm not your guy. He was trying to find every excuse in the book as to why he couldn't go. But what did God tell him? Who made man's mouth? Was it not I? Do I not have the ability to speak through you what I want spoken? To give to you what I want so that that stuttering problem that you have will be inconsequential? That limited view in your mind will be inconsequential if it's given to me. The same way... Never trust your words over God's words. Never predetermine the things that you're going to say in and of yourself and limit what God wants to say through you. He says, trust me. I will give you the words you need to speak. I will show you the things that you need to do. Trust me. Don't meditate it on beforehand because that's probably just going to end up getting you worked up into a, a tizzy of anxiety and worry. Don't worry about that. Trust me. I will take care of you. I will give you a mouth to speak that nobody will be able to contradict. I will give you wisdom. And one of the other things I want us to see is that we'll be delivered up even by our closest friends, parents, relatives, any earthly relationship. It doesn't matter what it is. You stand for Christ. 
You stand for his truth. You stand for the gospel. And you preach that gospel the way that the apostles did or the way that Jesus did or the way that the early church did. It does not matter how close of a relationship you have with somebody. They might betray you. Because it all boils down to the darkness does not like the light. That which is unholy does not like holy. And lies do not like truth. And if you stand for all three of those as you ought to, as an ambassador for Jesus Christ, you will be hated. And then he goes on and he says this, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now I think that that's a fascinating concept. Because he talks about it right, um, where was it? And some of you they will put to death. And then he goes on, by your endurance you'll gain your lives. Well, isn't that interesting? Like these are people who are already alive. What does their endurance have anything to do with gaining their lives? And I'll tell you what it is. It's exactly what Hebrews 10.36 says. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. Matthew 10.22 in a very similar passage says, The one who endures to the end will be saved. Not the one who endures to the end was saved, as if it was a proof of their salvation, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You gain your life, that which is promised to you, as you endure in Him. And this statement that he says right here is validation of that. Not a head of your hair of your head will perish. You might lose your life, but through your endurance, you will gain what was promised. And as 1 John 2, I think it's in verse 21, somewhere in that realm, he says, and this is what was promised to us, eternal life. There's really not any way around it other than a justifiable means in which man tries to do. But it says what it says. You and I, as Christians, must endure to the end. He goes on, he says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know as desolation has come near. Now, some of this is interpreted with a physical understanding and some of it is a spiritual understanding. Okay? Going through all of this passage in Luke chapter 21. Physically, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. In about 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. The Gentiles came in and destroyed the temple. Okay, that has had its fulfillment. But the coming of the Son of Man, there's many other things that still have to take place before He comes. He has not come yet because not all of this has taken place. And I'll show that in a second. He says, Then know its desolation has come near, meaning the Jews, Jerusalem, and the temple. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for those these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, in which we're still in. The times of the Gentiles have not been fulfilled yet. Romans, I think it's chapter, uh, chapter 11, I believe, is the one that talks about that. The times of the Gentiles have not been fulfilled yet. Okay? But the times of the Jews have. 
the times of the Jews of what needed to take place for some, at least some of it has happened. And what's waiting right now is still seven years, in my estimation, okay, still seven years that the Jews are still going to have to give an account for. All right, and it goes back into to Jeremiah and to Babylon and the 490 years. I'm not going to get into all that, but just know, in my estimation at least, there's still seven years that have to be accounted for that the Jews have to be dealt with. Because God always keeps his word. And we are in the time of the Gentiles even right now. And it has not been fulfilled just yet because the Son of Man has not come. So listen to what he goes on. He says, And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth the stress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is to come on the world. So you've got fear. In everybody, because they see these signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, the waves, the land, everything. And they're looking at us like, what is going to happen? Like, I don't know if you've seen the movie Day After Tomorrow. But in this movie, it's like these supercells of weather patterns and storms of tornadoes and, and freezing and, and um, tidal waves and tsunamis. And all these things are just coming all over. And people are in this place of foreboding of what is coming onto the world, what's going to happen to the world. It's everywhere. Let me just say, that hasn't happened quite yet. That kind of global scale has not happened yet. He says, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then, so after that, people fainting with fear and the foreboding of what is coming on the world. Meaning, when everything turns global and everything is chaotic. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. And who's they? The people who are afraid. Let me just tell you, if the world had seen Jesus come already in the way that it just said, with power and great glory, that they would see him. This is the people who are afraid of what... He's not talking about you. He said they will see. This means the unbelievers... People who are of the world, who are afraid of what's going on, who have no knowledge of what's taking place, and they're in fear and foreboding of what is about to happen to the world. They will see the Son of Man coming with great power and glory. That's a crucial part. He goes on, he says, Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is near. Are you catching kind of a timeline somewhat of this? I'm not, even, I'm not going to go deep into it. I'm trying to give you some tidbits of information in your studies of how to ascertain truth in eschatology. Do, we all, do, do any of us know exactly the day of the hour? Do any of us know exactly how things are going to play out? No. And as I said, there's some smart people who love Jesus who are on opposite sides. You have... You know, people who are pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. You have preterists and partial preterists. You have people who are, you know, thousand-year reigners in which they believe we're in the thousand-year reign now. And they all have evidence. I'm trying to give you some things to think about and to know. And eventually I'm going to wrap it up with, here's how we ought to be today. Because if we are who we are supposed to be today, if we're living according to who we are supposed to be today, then it doesn't matter what happens tomorrow. He goes on and he says, he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. Did you know that it was going to come out and leaf of what that leaf was going to look like before it came out or when it happened? It was when it happened, Jesus says. 
In the same way, with, as we begin getting closer to the times of all these things, we're going to start seeing it more clearly. But as for today, live in who you're supposed to be today. Don't worry about tomorrow. He goes on and says, So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near, meaning that the coming of Christ is, is, going to be, is coming. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And this is what I want to focus on just for a brief moment. This generation, okay, that's a word that in the Greek can signify several different things, and one of them being an age period of 30 to 33 years. It doesn't have to mean that. I've been told that uh, that's, a, that's the only definition of it. Go look it up. That's not all that it means. It can mean an age or a period or, or a time frame. It can also mean 30 to 33 years. And this is a viewpoint that many people who would be considered preterist in their viewpoint are. And they believe that because he says that this generation, 30 to 33 years, um, that all these things, what does he say? I say this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So this is written roughly, or at least Jesus is speaking this in 33 AD, okay? This is when Luke is backdating it to when Jesus spoke it because these are Jesus' words to his disciples in 33 AD. An age period of 33 years, if that's what it means, would put this at 66 AD. The temple is destroyed in 70 AD. So let me just tell you, the math doesn't add up. Are you following along with me? He says 66 AD. The generation will not... like. This generation will not pass away until all of this has happened, including the temple being destroyed. But the temple wasn't destroyed until four years after this generation would have passed away. It doesn't add up. The timeline is not matching. So rather than look at this as a literal 30 to 33 year generation, we can look at this as a, an age or a time frame and know that these things must all take place before the Son of Man is going to come. And not all of this has. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He says, understand, regarding his coming and our redemption, those words are true and absolute. They will not pass away. They will be fulfilled in the timing that God ordains that even Jesus himself doesn't know. Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour whenever God the Father says, go. Listen to what his warning is for us, though. He's trying to give us some signs. He's trying to give us some tidbits of things to look out for and to watch out for. But to ultimately know that his coming is at hand. And just as he talked about it in Romans 12, uh, Romans 12, Luke 12, and then Revelation 3, he says, look, our job is to stay awake so that when he comes and knocks on the door of our life, that we're awake so that we can answer the door to Him. And here's what He says. But watch yourselves. You can know for sure that my coming is absolute. It will happen. Your redemption is absolute. It will happen for those who endure to the end. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians 3. and says, by any means, any, mean, any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, look, I have been promised that, but I haven't attained it yet. And I'll do whatever I need to to make sure that in the end, when, when my number is called, that I'm there waiting to open up that door to him when he knocks. He says, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down 
with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. So in chapter 20 and 21, I've talked about the concept of this age and the age to come. I've talked about the concept of how in this life we have a temporal, physical existence and we cannot ever, ever make it equal to the life that we have in Christ in which it is eternal and spiritual. Don't ever confuse the two. He says, I don't want your hearts to be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. He says, I don't want you distracted of living for your life now, of having your best life now, making sure that your, your family's happy, making sure that your family's provided for, making sure that your job is successful, making sure you've got all kinds of money and you've got success and you've got everything that this life could afford you and that day come upon you like a trap and you miss it. Because you weren't awake. You were actually drunk with the things of this earth. You were filled with dissipation and the cares of this life. And you weren't even concerned about that day because you weren't even thinking about it. Man, I'll tell you what. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul most certainly was when he talked about Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come. He thought about it all the time. Peter thought about it all the time. We have testimonies of people who, who have observed and written down for our understanding of how often the apostles thought about it, whether scriptural or extra-biblical. That's what they thought about all the time, the day that they would get to be with their Lord. Let me ask you, what do you think about most? Do you think about your day's events? Are you weighed down with the worries and the concerns of this life? Are you thinking constantly about money and your bills and your job and your family? How often do you think about Christ and His return? And this is Jesus' point here. Don't get so weighed down with the things of this life that you forget about the next. Colossians 3, 1-3 actually says that if you've been raised with Christ, set your minds on the things above where Christ is and not on the things below. It's actually sinful for you to be thinking so much about this earth and the things on it. I'm not saying that it's the things you're thinking on are necessarily in and of themselves sinful, but if you give them more devotion than you do to the things of heaven, it is sinful. It's not bad to want to provide for your family. It's not bad to want to um, be successful in your job. It's not bad to want to uh, make sure that you, you're loving your wife and honoring her. Those are not bad things. But if you think more on those things than you do on Christ, then it's idolatry. And that day might come upon you like a trap. Listen to what he says. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He says, look, all these things are going to happen to all who dwell in the world. And you're going to be here. I'll just tell you, the concept of a pre-tribulation rapture, that didn't even come around until just a, few, a handful of year, uh, hundred years ago. Just a few hundred years ago, that concept came around. I don't see it. 
If you want to get into a discussion with me on it, I'll take you through Revelation 20 and the first resurrection doesn't come until after the seven-year tribulation. Let me just ask you, when the dead in Christ are raised and those who are alive are caught up together with Him, as it says in Thessalonians, if that's a pre-tribulation rapture, then if the dead in Christ are risen, that's a resurrection. How did the first resurrection not take place until after the seven-year tribulation? If one had already taken place. I don't buy into the pre-tribulation rapture. I most certainly don't buy into the, to the American man-made concept that God won't allow his church to go through suffering. Come on, man. Read the Bible. Look at Christ himself. I've literally heard from people who have said God would not allow his church to go. How entitled and spoiled and self-absorbed are we to think that God will not allow his church to go through trials when he let his own son go to a cross? I don't believe that a preacher of rapture is biblical. I believe we'll be here. If, if, if this tribulation period begins while I'm still alive, I don't believe that there's going to be a, a rapturing of the church, a rapturing of the Gentile church. I believe that we will be here to shine as stars in the midst of the darkness. As Daniel says, our job is to make sure that we are Staying awake. And interesting, it actually even says here, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength. Now here's what's interesting about that word. It's karazakzio is the Greek word. And here's what it means. To be counted worthy of and deserving of. I find that fascinating when compared to 2 Thessalonians 1, 3-8. That you may be considered worthy and deserving of standing before the Son of Man. I just think that's a fascinating concept. Guys, we're going to need to endure. And in order to endure well, we need the grace of God. And in order to have the grace of God, we must humble ourselves under His mighty hand in order to receive it. Yes, I just said you had to do something to get grace. But it wasn't me who said it. It's 1 Peter chapter 5 when he says God rejects the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. If you want to endure and endure well in the position of Jesus Christ, then you need grace, which is the enabling power of heaven to achieve that which was formerly impossible. You need it. And to get it, you need humility and you need faith. Those are the two things that you need to walk in in order to represent Christ and represent Him well and to do it in truth. And our job today is to stay awake. Spiritually meaning to stay awake, to keep our garments on and to make sure that we are fighting the mission that we are supposed to be fighting. And that is not an earthly mission for an earthly kingdom the mission that we are on is to testify the gospel of Jesus Christ and to live accordingly to the power of heaven that is in us. To bring honor and glory to the person of Jesus Christ and to what God has done through him in us. That is our mission. And to go and spread it as far as we can in truth. Everything else is under that. 
is to go and to make disciples, to teach them everything that God has committed to us in Christ to be taught and to go and live it. And if we're doing that today, with the grace that God will afford to us as we humble ourselves before Him, then you know what? It doesn't matter if He comes tomorrow. You'll be ready. And tomorrow we wake up and we die, we die to ourselves again and we pick up that cross and deny ourselves and we live again for the mission that God has given to us. Then it doesn't matter if He comes the next day. You'll be ready. You'll be awake. You'll, not, you'll hear the knocking on the door so as to open to Him at once. So how all this plays out, I'm not going to pretend that I know everything of how this is all going to play out. Here's what I do know. Is we have the commission to endure. We have the responsibility to stay in the boat. As Paul would put it in Acts, I think it's in Acts 27, where he talks about it. In this commission that he got a promise from the Father that all the lives would be spared. And then like eight verses later, men start trying to jump ship. And Paul says, unless you stay in the boat, you can't be saved. You will not partake of that promise unless you remain in the boat. And I'll say the same applies for you and I, unless we remain in Christ and endure till the end in our position of Jesus Christ through our faith in who he is, the covenantal faith, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Unless we endure to the end in that, this day might come upon us suddenly like a trap. It's not about just knowing the signs of the times of the coming of the Son of Man. It's more about knowing the Son of Man. And to every day, live your life to His glory in the way that He tells you to live and coming under His authority and being obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because that's our example in Hebrews 12. And he goes on and he says, And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. I love that. Jesus' whole mission, he sets us the example. Every day he was teaching in the temple. And at night he would retreat to the Mount of Olivet with his disciples. And I can't even imagine the stories that they would have. But then early in the morning the people would come to him. And he'd teach him again. His whole life was a mission field. And so should ours. And so may that day not come upon you like a trap. But may you live today to the utmost of the ability that God will grant to you through Jesus Christ. To live according to his word. To live for the mission that he's given to us. And not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. Even if they're good things. But to live as a soldier ought to live. As 2 Timothy 2.4 says. No soldier gets enlisted, gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You want to know the difference between a person who is a soldier of heaven and a civilian of earth? Look at how they live, what they think about the most, what they spend their money on, what their time consists of. And you'll be able to tell if a person is a civilian or a soldier, which are you. Because if you're a civilian, there's a lot of stuff that's going to come upon you like a trap. But if you're a soldier, then you're in the know. And so as you commit to live your life for the glory of Christ and finding your joy in Him, your happiness in Him, your contentment in Him, your satisfaction in Him, even if you don't have the things of this world, may your life be blessed as you seek to stay on mission for the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Y'all be blessed.